Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here with our producer Jimmy. Hi Stephanie. And we have a special guest today and that is our resident Shakespeare expert and Renaissance man, Professor Tony Cousins. Hi Tony. Hi Steph. (laughs) (laughs) I think you like the Renaissance man. Yeah, yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) What's not to like. Exactly. Um, So we're here to discuss um, Christopher Marlowe and the reason that we're discussing Christopher Marlowe today is not just because he's really interesting, but because on the 30th of May, um, it will be the 425th anniversary of his death. And his death is quite interesting as well. So we wanted to discuss a few of his works and his life and death and why you should care about Christopher Marlowe. So Tony... Um, for us to get started, who was Christopher Marlowe? Well, Christopher Marlowe is a poster boy. And <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. And he was a poster boy in his own time, and he's a poster boy uh, since the 1980s for us. So he's a poster boy in a, in a particular way in his own time. I guess where you've got to start is with Shakespeare in Love. If you go to Shakespeare in Love <laughs> and you can kind of pay attention to the guy playing Christopher Marlowe, which isn't hard to do because he's given such prominence, then you notice that Christopher Marlowe is set up as the playwright that all the other playwrights, including Shakespeare, want to be when they grow up. And (laughs) uh, this is really a very good account cinematically of Marlowe in a couple of ways. Uh, If you think, for example, about a contemporary of Marlowe's, Michael Drayton, Drayton writing about Marlowe's verse after Marlowe's death death, writes about it in terms that really celebrate the scope of Marlowe's imagination and really talk about the daring and the outrageousness, the exploratoriness, the way that he was prepared to go beyond boundaries of the normal and the familiar. And if you think at the other end of the pole, at much the same time, of the satires written in around 1598-1599 by a guy at Cambridge in Emmanuel College called Joseph Hall, who's uh, a Puritan, Uh, Hall doesn't like Marlowe. Drayton really likes Marlowe's verse, and Hall really hates it because Hall, he says, encourages people to think illicit thoughts and to dream big dreams that they're not entitled to dream. And they may go out of the theatre into the streets trying to make these dreams come true, and where will that end? So he attacks Marlowe uh, pretty much by name and uh, attacks Tamburlaine, the play for which Marlowe was best known at the time, explicitly. So you get these divided reactions, but what they both do is tell you how much Marlowe was in the popular gaze and of what great interest he was to his contemporaries. So there's that. But there's something I think even more conclusive, which is that if you take a look at the plays that Shakespeare writes insofar as we have them and insofar as we know when they were written progressively across his career... One of the things that you can't fail to notice and a few people have commented on is that Shakespeare throughout his career, not systematically but deliberately nonetheless, rewrites, sometimes multiply rewrites, Marlowe's plays so that he will take the Jew of Malta, for example, and he'll rewrite things from the Jew of Malta in The Merchant of Venice, and so on. And in fact, one of the uh, latest uh, ways of 
thinking about this kind of possibility, which I take to be actual rather than merely uh, plausible, is that uh, Shakespeare collaborated with Marlowe uh, when writing uh, his first plays. So, uh, th or what was what taken to be his first play, which would be Henry VI, Part Three. So, it seems very likely now on the evidence that we have that Shakespeare, who's a very pragmatic person, as he has to be, he's a professional playwright, that's his living, starts working with a contemporary who's a success and whose work he admires and whose work will prove to be for him a lifelong interest. Then as he goes throughout his long and very successful, unusually successful, productive career, he keeps on engaging with the work of Marlowe. He keeps on adapting it, appropriating it and rewriting it. For example, the easiest way that I could give a kind of thumbnail sketch of that would be to say that Macbeth is a kind of political rewrite of Dr Faustus. So you have Macbeth at the start of the play uh, going over some familiar Shakespearean territory that Shakespeare first went over in about 1593-94 in his uh, long dramatic poem Lucrece and there's a, a reworking of a scene in Lucrece very early on in the first soliloquy of Macbeth but when you see Macbeth at the very start of the play encountering the witches and then you see him subsequently reflecting on the witches what you're seeing is someone who is uh, reenacting Dr Faustus's predicament from Marlowe's play of that name in a political context so clearly for Shakespeare himself Marlowe was a poster child uh, a friend, a rival someone whose work held a lifelong fascination for him and also another way of underlining this would be simply to say that Shakespeare is a friend of and rival of Ben Jonson, another famous uh, playwright but Shakespeare doesn't engage with Jonson's plays very much they work together uh, Shakespeare is reputed to have acted in some of Jonson's material. Uh, they're writing King Lear and Volpone uh, within months of each other and the plays are quite similar. Mm. But Shakespeare never pays Johnson's work the kind of attention that he keeps on paying to the work of, of Marlowe. So that's Marlowe in his own time and the kind of respect and uh, I suppose fascination that he evoked in his or from his contemporaries but if you go to the world of the 1980s 1990s then you see Marlowe being used in the theory wars and culture wars as a poster child for some versions of post-structuralism particularly uh, amorocentric versions of post-structuralism such as the new historicism mm. where uh, Marlowe becomes a kind of person who views the world in terms of the extreme scepticism of the ancient Greek rhetorician Gorgias who uh, was famous for saying that we don't know anything and we can't know anything and we can't even know that we don't know anything <laughs> and therefore because Gorgias is a rhetorician and a great um, 
enemy of Plato's, or at least vice versa. <laughs> um, Gorgias says that when you're talking to a crowd in a trial and you're pleading a case, you can't pretend to grab hold of what's true because who knows what's true? And how do you know what, what's not true? So you can't know anything. You can't know that you know. You can't know that you don't know. So what do you do? You adapt your case in line with your brief to fit the occasion, to fit the circumstances, and to fit the time. And therefore, you present a decorous argument, decorous in the sense that it's apt f for the uh, circumstances and the time when you have to plead your case, and that's the best you do. Mm -hmm. So for that kind of uh, polemical use, Marlowe became a poster child in the 1980s and 90s, and one of the most, uh, I guess landmark discussions from the 80s, 90s of, of Marlowe has been Stephen Greenblatt's in his book uh, Renaissance Self-Fashioning from uh, 1981 uh, where Greenblatt is revisiting uh, the Swiss uh, historian Burkhardt who's the founder of cultural history and he's reworking Burkhardt's theory of uh, the self as a work of art which is a section in Burkhardt's book uh, which was written in 1860. Uh, he reworks that section of Burkhardt's book, The Self uh, as a Work of Art, in terms of Clifford Goetz's uh, anthropological theory. So it's a kind of amerocentric uh, anthropological reworking of Burkhardt, and in the process of that, Marlowe is very useful because he can be uh, used to illustrate contemporary preoccupations and to support pre, uh, contemporary preferences. So I was wondering, that's, that's, that's fascinating and a really interesting uh, kind of um, discussion of how, of, of like where Marlowe is and why he's so, so kind of popular or, or um, worked over today. I was wondering if you could tell us about, um, A, some of those preoccupations and B, something about Marlowe as a man, and what we know about him as a, as a person, as well as his death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the Marlowe uh, death is, uh, is, an, is a small industry, <laughs> really. Um, there's, there's just books that keep coming out saying Marlowe died this way <laughs> and for this reason. Everyone knows he was stabbed through the eye in a pub brawl in, I think, Deptford. But, you know, who did the stabbing? Was it an outraged boyfriend? Was it someone um, to whom he owed money? Was it someone that he'd crossed uh, in, a, in a business dealing or, you know... Or was he a spy? Yeah. Well, spy, counterfeiter, um, and, uh, and, and certainly uh, a, a person whose sexuality was, uh, at least in theory, outrageous in his own day. One of his very early works, if not his actual earliness, is a, um, a kind of parody of the story of, of Dido and Aeneas, where you start out with Jupiter and Ganymede, and Ganymede is the Trojan prince in ancient myth who's uh, just uh, in the fields with his flock, uh, looking beautiful, and jo Job or Jupiter sees him and thinks, well, wouldn't it be nice to have him in heaven, say, serving me with drink? 
and sends down his eagle to seize Ganymede and carry him off back to the heavens mm. where he becomes Jove's boy lover. And so Ganymede goes into uh, Elizabethan slang as a term for a, a rent boy, for a, for a prostitute. Mm. So in uh, Marlowe's play, Dido and Aeneas, we have at the start uh, a, a kind of lover's tiff between Jove and Ganymede where Jove is saying that he wants to have sex with Ganymede and Ganymede is playing coy until Jove offers him something to make it worth his while. Now, the intriguing thing in, in this is not that the heterosexual love story, which then goes on to blunder around and look grotesquely comic instead of heroic, is prefaced by um, a pedophile love argument. Uh, but what's interesting about this is that it was meant for performance at a boys' school appropriate yeah so uh try doing that uh today and and see what happens next well once you've been through the 6 30 news shows and uh, across the the tabloids uh, front pages and you're in prison um hey you know what's left <laughs> so uh that's that's kind of what would capture people's attention about Marlowe, i i guess in snapshot form but if you go to uh, one of his later pieces, which is a long erotic poem that uh, Hero and Leander, mm. which centres on a heterosexual love story and uh, which was aimed to win the patronage of um, Henry Risley, as it's pronounced, though it's not spelt anything like that. I know, it's so confusing. It's yeah, like it W's, looks, it's got... Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> it, it, it looks like Riotsley, but apparently it's, it's pronounced Risley. Yeah, yeah. Who knew? So, um, yeah, it's meant to catch his attention. He's um, uh, a, a blonde, pretty boy who never marries. Uh, go figure, join the, the dots. And um, Marlowe writes uh, this uh, notionally heterosexual uh, love narrative poem for him. And Shakespeare writes Venus and Adonis at the same time. Mm. Also notionally a heterosexual love story. But in the case of each poem, the actual object of of desire of sexual fascination as presented by the clearly male narrator in, in each case in Hero and Leander and in Venus and Adonis is uh, the male protagonist mm. so it's not Hero who is actually the woman of the piece in Hero and Leander it's Leander and uh, in Venus and Adonis by Shakespeare, it's Adonis, the blundering um, adolescent boy who's pursued by the goddess of love who was turned into a rather large and unattractive woman um, <laughs> who is so strong that she can pick up Adonis, tuck him under <laughs> her arm, which she literally does, and run away with him while he's kind of blushing and spluttering and screaming. It's but a anyway, strategy. It's yeah, uh, yeah, you don't see it much and it's not recommended. But <laughs> no. Uh, no. So anyway, in, in Hero and Leander, you start out with a description of Hero and, and of Leander, and the description of Hero is all about her clothes, mm. and particularly the boots. It's very high camp, the boots that she wears and you know what, what she's got on. So it's, it's kind of this Victoria's Secret presentation of, <laughs> of, of Hero. Um, but uh, what you then get with Leander is no clothes. You get the body. Right. And yeah. you get the body presented in very intimate physical terms. Um, such as delicious meat is to the taste, so was his neck in touching, something like that, <laughs> vaguely. Um, so, so like the first, uh, about line 2 to 45 is the description of Hero, 
and her boots and her dress and all the rest of it. Then you go on to Leander and it's all Leander without his clothes and the body <laughs> and what it'd be like to touch him. And, and uh, then you get to the point where the, the male narrator says, oh, look, I can't go anymore. I can't describe this body. It's beyond my capacities. And then you go off into the story. And uh, in the story, uh, Hero is uh, the ironically virginal priestess of the goddess of love and beauty, Venus, and she is courted by uh, Leander. And throughout the, uh, the verse narrative, Hero is progressively dehumanized. She's compared very unflatteringly to things like uh, harpies. Uh, harpies, as we know, are hybrids of uh, birds and women. One of the things that most people don't know about uh, harpies as mythic creatures is that they smell terrible. Right. So that um, they're voracious, they're violent, and uh, they stink. So the beautiful virginal hero is compared to a harpy. She's compared to a mermaid, half fish, half woman. Mermaids supposedly drown. Uh, sailors whom they lure into the waters. And the whole point of the hero Leander myth is that Leander, of course, drowns at the end of it. Marlowe knows everyone is familiar with the story, doesn't bother rounding the story off. But we get to that kind of point, I suppose. So you get this uh, dehumanizing presentation of Hero, and then when Leander actually has sex with her, he's compared to Hercules, so that he becomes the big man, he becomes the hero. And, of course, in the mythology of Hercules, one of the uh, salient points that Shakespeare's and Marlowe's contemporaries were well aware of was that Hercules once was supposed to have made love to 50 women straight. <laughs> so uh, when we're talking about Leander in comparison with Hercules, we're talking about him as a preeminent elite sexual athlete. Right. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so the god of the ocean, Neptune, falls in love with Leander as he's swimming across the Hellespont to get from A to B, where A is where he's coming from and B is is, is hero. And uh, Neptune falls in love with him, tries to seduce him, and uh, Leander doesn't recognise that he's being picked up or is is kind of being sought after by a kind of a, a caricature of everybody's camp uncle <laughs> and um, squeaks that he isn't a woman. And uh, Marlowe's line is, thereat Neptune smiled. <laughs> right, now read on. So, yeah, so that's Hero and Leander, which goes into uh, quite a number of editions. I mean, I th think Venus and Adonis goes into 16 editions. Um, it's immensely popular. And Hero and Leander, and it's very hard to say which of these comes first. And if they do come first, one does come before the other, rather, it, it can't have been very long, but Marlowe's poem is just as uh, successful and and uh, popular as, <laughs> as Shakespeare's is. So you got that. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the plays. And mm. so that would bring us to, I guess, the play that probably today is best known, which is Dr. Faustus. Yeah, I was just going to say that you taught me here on Leander, and I was going through my old notes from that class <laughs> from a million years ago. Don't quote them, please. Yeah. No, no, what I've written is my, my kind of summation of, oh, right. of that, and it said something like, Hero, nice clothes, who cares? Yeah. And <laughs> Leander, Leander, hottie, 
Yeah, love it's it. So true. It's so true. Yeah, it's, and Marlow agrees with you. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's amazing how you read that poem and you think, oh, you know, love story, and then you read it again. You're like, okay, some this, yeah. something's going on here that <laughs> that's not you know what you would expect. But before no. we get on to on to um, the plays, I just wanted to touch on sexuality. Mm. And so Marlow is obviously gay. Mm. Um, how is that thought of in the early modern period for those of, of, of um, you know, both you and I have done, a, you're the early modern expert, but I've done a lot of work on early modern as well. So I could answer that as well. But I wanted you to sort of talk about um, the, the role of sexuality in the early modern period before we yeah. move on to the play. Well, I mean, that's, again, that brings us back to the, to the 1980s, but to be more specific, it takes us back to 1968 because it takes us back to Foucault's history of sexuality mm. And uh, in the in the history of sexuality, Foucault says nineteenth century everybody's sexuality gets classified, labels get stuck on people's sexuality. Mm. Prior to that, particularly back, for example, in uh, the early modern period in Shakespeare's time, sexuality is a kind of spectrum, mm. and and nobody identifies anybody as having a particular kind of sexual trajectory, which. Uh, exclusively brands them Mm. and uh, this was uh, really interesting I mean it's completely untrue (laughs) (laughs) sorry Fico yeah but (laughs) apart from that uh, people really like it of course and uh, that generation of of gay critics from the uh, 60s through to the 90s in particular think this is just fabulous uh, because it it ties in with, with lots of things such as, for example, the fact that on the British stage uh, in Shakespeare's and Marlowe's time, there are no female actors. There are mm. only boys who get dressed up as, as women. So then the question becomes, OK, you've got um, often the situation famously where, as in Twelfth Night, you have a boy playing a girl who gets dressed up as a boy. So you've got all this play with gender. You've got fluidity of gender roles and dum de dum de dum And in consequence, then, do, do we see that uh, in the early modern world... Uh, gender is fluid, non-discriminatory, it is unlabeled, unclassified, just a continuum where a person can be many things, all things, uh, and you're not A or B or C or D. And uh, the answer to that is, uh, well, not exactly, because an argument put forward by the critics who followed Foucault was that there was no uh, linguistic marker for uh, same-sex male love Mm. uh, in Shakespeare's time. And uh, that is absolutely not true. Uh, This uh, one marker, for example, that's well-known and that Francis Bacon uses, and Bacon was himself gay, um, writing for uh, the gay monarch James I, whom he served, Bacon uses the phrase, as others do, masculine love. Mm. So same-sex male love is is masculine love. Now, what other uh, linguistic markers there may have been, um, I am am not really aware of because I've never been doing research where I've had to kind of take too much account of that. I mean, people will use phrases such as boy lovers to talk about pedophiles. Mm. So, for example, when... um, Robert Southwold, who's uh, since I think about 1970 been a Catholic saint. He's a Jesuit priest. He's arrested for being a Jesuit priest when to be a priest in England is illegal. 
Um, he's uh, tortured by the Queen's torturer, who is Topcliffe, a guy called Topcliffe. Um, that's a story in its, in its own grotesque mm-hmm. way. And uh, Topcliffe keeps taunting him, calling him, calling him boy priest, saying, you know, you're, you're a, a basically a, a, a pedophile, uh, you're a boy lover, dum-de-dum-de-dum. So, yeah, uh, sexuality is legally treated one way and socially another, as we would expect. I mean, sodomy is a charge, which and whereas sodomy includes things like sex with animals, for example. Um, sodomy is, is a charge which, if levelled against someone, could result theoretically in the death penalty. Mm. But even though there are discriminatory laws against same-sex uh, behaviour or practice, nonetheless, there's a large gay community spread across uh, London literary life and London court life in Shakespeare's and Marlowe's time, just as there is, say, in the 20th century, uh, uh, in you know, from about the period of the, the First World War on, there's a, a huge... Uh, gay uh, culture that runs through uh, society and uh, you can see the phenomenon of Burgess, Philby and McLean and Blunt Mm. in connection with that. But my point is that in the early modern times, uh, sexuality is is certainly uh, regarded in ways that do involve classification and discrimination Mm. and there are legal measures directed against particular kinds of sexual behaviour to reinforce that. So Marlowe's sexual preferences are voiced to people who either share them or are aware of them and accept them as part of the real world around them. But that doesn't mean to say that they're voiced in a world which can't read different kinds of sexual behaviour as different or accepts them in some kind of utopian way as mm. being all equal. That's so when the... people read Hero and Leander, mm. they would have understood the kind of same-sex desires that are articulated in that poem? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. and so Marlowe was kind of, you know, it was okay to do that in a kind of coded way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, mm. um, and it's, I mean... To be honest, it's not that coded, really. No. I mean, in, in Edward II, about which we were talking briefly just before the recording began... Um, we did say we weren't going to talk about it. We did it. say we weren't going to talk about it, yeah. You brought it and up. So I did, yeah. So as, as, in as much as I'm not talking about it, I guess what I would not say is that um, there's one of the speeches by Gaveston where he says... Um, he talks about... Um, men's interests in boys' sexuality... Right, and uh, that's fairly clear. Mm. So there's a lot of ambiguous... I mean, that's quite explicit. There's a lot of ambiguous sexual play Mm. in Shakespeare's drama, for example, Mm. and there's a lot of same-sex attachment that's not ambiguous at all. Mm. So, you know, as in Twelfth Night, um, as in Henry V, as in The Merchant of Venice and so on. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly, and as in the sonnets. So, yeah, uh, Marlowe is aware of transgressing official norms 
and he's clearly writing for an audience that is quite happy to see them transgressed. Mm. I mean, some of the audience isn't happy to see them transgressed and will want things such as he writes banned or burnt. There's a big book burning in 1599 mm. in London at the behest of the bishops where uh, satires, including Joseph Hall's, as, as uh, I, I remember reading, get, get burnt because censorship is very strict then. But uh, as far as sexuality goes, it's understood that there's a very wide range of human sexual interests and these get written about in full awareness that uh, any given audience is sexually heterogeneous. Mm. Um, okay, now that we've had that kind of discussion... We've aired that. We've yeah. aired that. Um, yeah. Let's talk about Dr Faustus. Okay, yeah, Faustus is uh, a play which made a big impact because it's a, it's a play about salvation and damnation. It's written at a time when these issues are of interest to more people than they are now. Mm. And the whole concept of writing a play in which demons feature prominently is of some interest to people who believe often in the literal existence of witches and the power of witchcraft. So what year was Faustus? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, and I can't remember. That's all right. Yeah. So that's, I can't that's remember the, either. So that's yeah. through to the keeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's two years, isn't there? There's two texts of Faustus. Yeah, there's, there's this, a well, and text. the A and the B text. Um, there's the 1604 and the 1616 texts. Yeah. So they're published well after Things, his death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But and this is usually taken that the the A text, which most people, <coughs> pardon me, prefer, is uh, the shorter theatre uh, text, and then the the longer one has been thought often for a long time to be the the touring text that people took into the country for the country uh, theatrical tours. But yeah, uh, you've got the two versions. Uh, you've got demons. There was the the famous bit of law that. Uh, one night an extra demon was spotted on stage, one that wasn't on the cast list. And so, you know, a demon materialised <laughs> on stage. Well, you can't get publicity like that. You no. Know. Yeah. It's it's almost like the, uh, the Exorcist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Reagan saw her over the, in the... Didn't see her in the <laughs> And they're crazy, apparently, but in one of the uh, making of, of, of The Exorcist. <laughs> really? There's a oh, scene okay. there, apparently, where she uh, didn't see her in reflection, and when she watched the film again, she said... I don't remember filming that. I don't remember <laughs> that. It was a, one of those oh. urban myths that was told about it. There you go. So it's, it's okay. glad to see it has its roots yeah, back yeah. in Marlowe's days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a guy, an ex-Jesuit called Malachi Martin, isn't it, who writes mm. the uh, the book after the movie about the five cases of exorcism um, that um, he claims to have been connected with. Yeah, he certainly claims to have been connected with the case that was used by Blatty in The Exorcist mm. and he's claiming to set the record straight but I gather that Malachi Martin if I'm remembering mm. that name correctly has a rather colourful past as a in and out of the Jesuit order person etc um, oh. etc et so yeah but anyway so mm. it's about salvation and damnation and uh, it's a play that People have loved to interpret in, in different ways. For a long time, Faustus was looked at as a play with a hero who expressed the human desire to 
reach further than we could grasp. And so to attempt to grab hold of more than we could possibly possess. The idea being that humor, it celebrated the daring of human aspiration and the extent of human vision. So for a long time, Faustus himself was sentimentally represented as a kind of embodiment of the idea of Renaissance man the person who wanted new worlds to discover and conquer. So a person who had outgrown the medieval vision of the world as enclosed, a space enclosed by God. And therefore, the play was taken over by a a certain generation of critics in the late 19th, early 20th century through to about the middle of the 20th century, I guess, from that point of view. Then when people started to feel that that really wasn't a historically defensible reading of the play any further, what they did was say, okay, well, if Marlowe is a subversive character, and clearly in many ways he was, then obviously Dr. Faustus can't be a a straight religious play. It would be a very dull play if it were simply a play about redemption and damnation. Mm -hmm. And fair enough, I don't think myself it is a play about redemption and damnation. I think it's a play in which the issues of redemption and damnation are used to a further end, Mm. the one that Marlowe is more interested in. But in any case, people began to say, "Okay, so what is it? Well, maybe it's a satire on religion of the time, so maybe it's a satire on the dominant form of Protestantism at the time. And the hegemonic theology of Protestantism at the time was uh, a variously inflected Calvinism, and Calvin is most famous for his idea of double predestination, which runs, uh, should you not have had to encounter that recently. Um, But, you know, if you know the Westboro Baptists, then you're already (laughs) familiar with one part of it, at least. Um, (laughs) That from the beginning of time, though there's an argument about whether it's from the beginning, just before the fall or after the fall, (laughs) and further nice discriminations, God decided that certain people, as yet uncreated, would be damned for eternity according to secret knowledge of his own and justice of his own, which we could not recognize or fathom even if we were able to apprehend it mentally. Uh, And second, that uh, some people were, conversely, for reasons known only to God, uh, elected, chosen by him for eternal bliss with him in heaven. So the idea is that the story of Faustus, according to that reading, is a satire on predestination. Faustus is a person who seems to be making choices but has no choices and, in fact, is damned, and we watch him struggle with the uh, recognition that he gains that he is one of the damned, one of the reprobate. Uh, That's not a view that I myself really... uh, take seriously Um, it's true that Calvin does talk about predestination and he emphasizes it and it's true that Bateser his uh, disciple uh, hardens this, sets it in concrete so to speak but what's really clear from the play I guess is two things one is is that the play is very taken up with the idea of, of humanism that is with the educational project of the time uh study of what we'd call the humanities which are the things that make you human 
at least in theory, that humanize you. You learn how to be a human being as best you can from studying the humanities. They e expand upon your capacity to, to be a fully realized human being. Mm. So Faustus is a scholar in the humanities who at the start of the play rejects the humanities and therefore rejects the things that have made him human. And therefore, this story of Faustus's progressive dehumanization as he turns away from the humanities, which have given him his life, which have made him famous, which have made him successful, uh, is a tragedy played out about a man who turns away from the things that have made him human. In, and it's played out in terms of the current theological concerns with redemption or damnation. So, in other words, uh, the way that I read the play, theology is a vehicle in the play for studying humanism uh, as a contemporary educational phenomenon and social phenomenon, not just kind of something that happens in schools or universities, but a social phenomenon that uh, shapes human lives. And... Uh, Faustus's rejection of humanism is paradoxically carried on in the name or carried out in the name of two old humanist ideas, not the only two humanist ideas, not even the dominant human ideas, humanist ideas, but ones that were famous and kept getting repeated. And so Faustus is a person who rejects the humanities because he wants him paradoxically to pursue two of the ideas that come from an older generation of humanist thought, namely the idea that human beings are unique because they have the power to transform themselves infinitely. You can turn yourself into or towards whatever you like, whatever you want to become. And second, in line with that, human beings have a unique capacity to achieve self-perfection, to perfect themselves. So you can transform yourself, at least in theory, until you become more than human. So Faustus's idea is, I want to transform my life with which I'm unhappy. I want to become more than I am. I want to become someone who on earth has the powers like the power of a god. And that means I can't be bound by the humanist studies, the humanist program of studies, areas of interest, education that have made me what I am. I have now, in the name of those two humanist ideas, to go beyond humanism itself. And that instead of perfecting him, transforms him into something which is less than human, as the very brutal clowning scenes in the play make clear. The more he takes part in the clowning scenes, which involve the victimization of others, the less human he progressively shows himself to be. So I see that the play is a kind of critique of humanism as a very large social phenomenon carried out in religious terms. But the other and more, and more simple reason for my objecting to that take on the play is that up to a certain point, it's very clear that Faustus does have choices. Mm. Uh, the good and evil angel turn up, and there's no reason to believe that the good and evil angels are just projections of his consciousness. That idea was brought up in the wake of Freudian theory in the 1930s, and it's it's clearly uh, an attempt in the world of modernism to recuperate the play when the religious concerns of the play are no longer able to be taken seriously by most people. Mm. So you offer a psychoanalytic reading instead. But anyhow, the point is the good and evil angels 
turn up and uh, Faustus has to make moral choices. He's confronted with a dilemma and he makes choices up to the point where he then, given that he's committed himself to a course of action in his life, is not capable of making changes any further. He's so entrenched in his way of being in the world that he can no longer choose freely about being another way in the world. And it's at that point that you suddenly start to become particularly aware of what I think is one of the play's most interesting phenomena, namely this, that as Faustus recognises he has moved away from those very things that humanised him before he abandoned them, the more nostalgic he gets for them. And as he becomes progressively less and less human and yearns more and more for contact with other human beings in familiar human ways, in familiar human terms, he kept, keeps looking back to uh, classical writings in particular, which were very big in the program for uh, studied according to uh, various forms of uh, humanist education. He keeps looking back to classical texts because they connect him with what he once was and to the human world he's given up, to the human self that he's forsaken. So it's a play which ends with Faustus having turned away from, whom, from who he is and having turned away from uh, the socialization that made him what he was and from the universe in which that socialization took place which is the universe of God so he's turned away from himself from his world and his community and from his God and he's left utterly alone in a complete kind of existential isolation at the end of the play so what really for me has always been most striking about the play is that it begins with a very, very long soliloquy in which Faustus looks as though he's making up his mind about what he wants to do next. I've made myself a success. What do I do now after success? And people often think, oh, Faustus is making a choice. This is a, a speech about decision. But when you look at the speech closely, you listen to it attentively, you realize that Faustus has already made up his mind and in fact, the speech is a rationalization of a decision already made. Mm. And it's in that speech that Faustus systematically belittles the humanities, the area of human study and interest that have shaped him as a human being. He turns away from them. And then in the last soliloquy, you get a man who has all his later life wished to turn himself into something unique suddenly realizing that now he is unique and he is uniquely not what he was he is almost uniquely less than human and he is unique in as much as he is utterly alone he is completely by himself and it's when Faustus is confronting his own diminished humanity and his isolation that you come across one of what is the most uh, moving moments in the play. Uh, it runs, the, the lines I'm thinking of, and I'm quoting from memory here, so bear with me, but in the last soliloquy, O soul be turned into little water drops and fall into the ocean, ne'er be found. Now, 
the Faustus who wanted to become unique, to be preeminent, to stand at the apex of human existence, to be godlike, now wants oblivion. He wants to be forgetful of self. He wants to be forgotten by others. He wants to be anonymous. He wants to be undetectable. And there's a since we're moving in the domain of, of humanism, in amongst the fragments of uh, the Greek material philosopher Heraclitus, there's uh, a famous uh, dictum which says that uh, water is antithetic to spirit. It, uh, it doesn't say, as I recall it, a race's spirit, but it is the enemy of spirit and diminishes or does, in, in, in fact, uh, destroy it. Mm. And so it's very interesting that you've got Faustus saying, a soul be turned or changed, it might be, into little water drops and fall into the ocean, ne'er be found. He's really asking for the dispersal of his, his own soul. Mm. Uh, he wants to lose himself completely. You know, whereas at the start of the play in the first soliloquy, he's talking about medicine and he says, well, curing people, I can cure people all the time. I'm famous for having cured people. You don't know whether this is true or false, but in any case, he's telling himself this. Then he says, oh, well, if I could bring people back to life, if I could raise people from the dead, now that would be something. And, of course, he's alluding to two things. He's alluding to Jesus raising Lazarus and then Jesus being raised from the dead himself. Mm -hmm. So what he wants to be is, is to be, as on earth, a god. You know, mm. and uh, at the end of the play, we see where that has led. That's, that's really interesting, Ash, because um, while you're talking, I can see all those direct parallels to Macbeth. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Earlier, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's really almost uncanny in the way it uh, parallels some of the themes and ideas explored in Macbeth. Even that last soliloquy is very similar to Macbeth's final soliloquy. Yeah. You know, mm. With the sound and fury signifying nothing. Yeah, yeah, that's very so true. That's there's some really, point. really interesting parallels there. Um, and even the beginning with the. Um, making up of the mind already. Macbeth has already made up his mind yes, exactly. to kill mm. the king. So there's, yeah, I mean, I think there's really interesting ideas there, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that uh, when you look at Dr. Faustus, it's a very powerful play because of, uh, and I mean, this comes back to the point about Macbeth, doesn't it? Macbeth really does have wonderful soliloquies. Mm. You know, people keep coming back to those, especially as you're saying, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow mm. and tomorrow, yeah. yeah. And you've got all of this, and uh, f the best parts by far for me, and the most the most powerful moments in the play, are uh, Faustus's soliloquies. Um, and uh, when you uh, look at Faustus in uh, the clowning scenes, and you know, in the in the B version of of the text, the sixteen sixteen version, there's um, there's a lot of of clowning, and uh, you can see how it might be necessary to put that on, but it's for a modern audience incredibly boring, because it's just you know it's just one pratfall, one practical joke after another. It's it's kind of like uh, a movie for fifteen year olds, <laughs> you know. That has um, a certain appeal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not averse to that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I suppose yeah, it's it's like that famous American review of the Don Lane show, as was you know, <laughs> which when it was shown on uh, a small kind of you know, early in the in the morning on American television. If you're drunk enough, uh, you know, it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's this one. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you can sit there and think, yeah, okay. So Next time you're reading Dr. Faustus or next time I'm reading Dr. Faustus, I'll be thinking about that. 
Oh, the right. Domain show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck on the parallels. So, you know, while you're talking about the clowning, I'm thinking about the porters thing. Yeah. The whole drunky thing. Oh, so that's true too. Every, yeah. Everything's like, yeah, giving parallels to me. My mind's just yeah, yeah. explode right now with parallels. Yeah. There's so many interesting parallels with that. Well, yeah. And uh, and let me, apropos of, 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 of absolutely nothing, <laughs> um, take you to YouTube to uh, okay yeah not what i expected you my, to say no <laughs> yeah. no, no but I'm, I'm pretty sure i've got the name of the show right there's a, a, a western from the 50s called the texan right, right brought to you by laramie cigarettes oh, okay yes. and, yeah. the, and you used to go you segued seamlessly from the end where uh, in some instances still in character and in costume the lead actor uh would uh would do the ad for laramie cigarettes but they show a complete Laramie Cigarettes ad. And in, in one of these, there's a guy sitting in his expensive apartment in a suit, in a tie, in the evening, alone, as you do. And he's sitting there, and the interlocutor says to him, more or less, say, what's that you're reading? That must be an interesting book. And he says, well, it is. And the interlocutor goes on, well, this must be one of the latest thrillers or potboilers and so on. The guy says, oh, no, no, far from that. It's written by someone who, who lived 300 years ago, Christopher Marlowe. <laughs> and uh, I think it's from memory, it's Faustus he's, he's reading. And the, the whole point of this is that just as the man of distinction reading Christopher Marlowe chooses a book that other folk won't and or or can't or don't read, so he chooses the cigarette that is the thinking man's cigarette, which is right. Laramie's cigarette. So clearly, all true readers of Christopher Marlowe <laughs> should put on their suits, sit in their apartments, and smoke Laramie cigarettes. I'll remember that. Yeah, it's a thought for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a better place to finish this <laughs> podcast, so I'm just going to finish it with that. On that high note. On, that was a that was amazing. <laughs> You're very welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I'm speechless now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tony. That was amazing as per usual. Thank Cheers. you to Jimmy as well for coming in. Thank you, Bob. Uh, uh, we were just in awe at your, like, I could see Jimmy's face when you started quoting verbatim with, like, no notes. Well, verbatim from memory. <laughs> verbatim from memory. But, but no notes, no nothing in the room, and Jimmy and I were just like, oh. <laughs> We wish we could do that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you will, Oscar, it, you will. <laughs> now, the part that impresses me the most is when he remembers the act and scene. I he know. certain lines, but then when you go into the act and scene. I've got no clue. sometimes uh, line numbers as well. Don't yeah. Know that. Yeah, me, yeah, yeah. That's me done. Yeah, sometimes you get lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is like memory goals going on here. Hashtag memory goals. Yes. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll take it and run. Yeah. <laughs> thank you once again, Tony. That was amazing. Um, thank you to the listeners as well. Um, if you could please rate and review us on Apple um, Podcasts. That would be really, really helpful. And please send us some suggestions um, for future shows or issues that you'd like us to cover, etc. If you have read Dr. Faustus while smoking um, Laramie cigarettes, then you can tell us about that too. Why not? <laughs> no, you're dead by now. You're not <laughs> No, no. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, okay, guys. Thanks. See you in a week.